Well, our consideration tonight in Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus is, as we read a moment ago, chapter 1 and verses 15 to 23. And you'll be forced to agree with me that there's a lot of material there. And so we're going to be highly selective in our treatment of it this evening, not wanting to prolong this series overly, but uh, moving at a reasonable pace, as it were. And so, of necessity, uh, just focusing our attention on on fewer matters rather than every matter that might truly clamour for our attention. And the heading to go with our consideration is, it really is as good as this. It really is as good as this. And we've been seeing the development of Paul's thoughts and going through the work of the Father in eternity past and then to the Son and glorious riches of redemption, the Holy Spirit and how he seals us and we're aware that we belong to our God. And there is the guarantee that one day there'll be more than our soul being saved, body as well, and that we have heaven ahead of us. And then in this passage we're looking at tonight, really the focus now moves to God's people. That having said all the things that Paul has said, and again, there's much more we could have said on any of those verses than actually I have done in this series. But having said all that he has said, now he is moved to pray. uh, As though having said so much, it now needs prayer to ask God to actually bring all of that to life for the people, to bring to them understanding, light and revelation, to put that truth into them so that it forms there something living, a rich deposit within them. And it's quite a prayer, isn't it? And uh, if you thought there, well, where's the full stop coming? (laughs) Well, indeed. Uh, In Greek, it's 269 words and there is no full stop. Uh, The prayer just flows and follows and one thought leads on to another thought. And so it's one sentence, really, all of that that Paul pours out. You get that sense of it, don't you? He's pouring himself out. He's moved, actually, by the church. He has particular people in mind, but there are other people that he doesn't know, and we imagine that this letter actually is going to other churches where he is personally not known to the people. And so he's got all kinds of people in view. What he's heard, he likes, that there is love for all the saints and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, shorthand for real Christian living, that we're looking to the Lord Jesus, the one that's much of what's just gone before in those first 14 verses has been about, and that it's moved people to look out to each other and to love each other and own each other as being part of this this great venture, this great project that God is bringing to being and will one day complete the church, this household of God, this living church, an entity, and where There is that love for all the saints. So it moves Paul. He's not ceasing to give thanks and make him mention of these people in his prayers. So he is, he, he assures them of this. And so he prays that we would get 
the big picture even bigger in our view and that we would see ourselves where we fit in to all the grand kind of scope of what truth he's already uh, spoken to us in those first 14 verses and for us to really get the message what this actually means. So first heading, the need for understanding. Need for understanding. That's what he's praying. He's praying to God, God of our Lord Jesus Christ. We think there of our Lord Jesus Christ as our mediator. We're thinking of him there in very much his human nature to the fore and how he spoke about his God and your God and your father and my father. And so he relates. So he relates there because he's also in the flesh as well as being God. And that's how the language comes across here. And that the father of glory, yes, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give the people the spirit of wisdom, and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. That's where it happens. Something happens in the way that we understand things. This is Holy Spirit given light and knowledge. Why Paul is praying that you don't just come by it. It doesn't just happen. It's not just like looking up facts in a book or you turn to the, the index there and oh, it's on page such and so and you turn it up and all oh, right, there we are. Now I know that this is something far, far deeper than that. And far more difficult actually to assimilate because there's a battle going on, isn't there? And our understanding is not just a sort of neutral area. It's not a kind of easy, you just sort of imprint the truth upon it. There it is, like the the words on a page, job done. It's not like that. There's a battle. And that knowledge needs to be prayed for, and that it be prayed for in that the understanding will be enlightened. This spirit of wisdom and revelation, you have it, revelation. God has to speak this into the very depths of our being, into our soul. Well, we have the Holy Spirit, and we can read that, can't we, from verses 13 and 14. It is. We're not sort of having to jump around and do strange things in order to try to attract God's attention and kind of give us some assurance we might have the Holy Spirit. Well, say, no, you have him. But it's not automatic from that moment that you will have all that he wants to reveal to you in one down payment. And that he has more to share. And we need to pray that he would give that extra dimension to our lives. So we pray for the work of the Holy Spirit, whom in fact we already have. So already there's a work of the Holy Spirit, but it doesn't end there. It doesn't rest in the fact that when we first believed, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That was good, but there's more to come. And what is done by virtue of our ownership and God's sovereign ownership of us is a guarantee of more, more light, more truth, more revelation, and more to actually impact our understanding. Because we have everything, actually. We have the Holy Spirit and we have the Bible. We have everything, but we don't see it yet. And there are connections that you and I have yet to make. Scripture we've yet to have, as it were, implanted upon us and its relevance. Speak to us. There are dots to be joined up. There are connections that we still have yet to make. And that the Holy Spirit is given to help us to do it, to enjoy more what we have received. 
Christian faith and to, to grow in that and our appreciation of Christ and to be able to apply the truth more carefully and accurately to ourselves, not not misapply it, not, not clumsily use it and actually do injury to ourselves, but to apply it carefully. You know, it's like uh, going to somebody's house maybe and there are lots and lots of things there. And you're like, well, what's this do? Oh, I really know. I've had it for years. I don't know what that thing does there or book on the shelf. Oh, you've ever read that? No, I haven't read that. What's it about? And we can have a house full of things and yet we don't really know what we've got. And so it is in a sense that we've got all these things. We don't really know what we've got, what's here in our hearts, what can yet be shown to us by the Holy Spirit. And in all of this, well, God has planned it, hasn't he, that there should be interaction, that we pray to him. He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one from whom the Holy Spirit has proceeded, come into our lives. So we we ask him and God hears, God acts upon our pleas and he pours blessings out upon us. This is not something we do on our own. It's actually a community experience. There's life and the life is meant actually to rub off from one to the other, that we grow together, that we are a communion of saints, that this love for all the saints, what it's meant to contain within it is a sharing what each and every one of us has received by way of light, spiritual wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. No one of us has a monopoly on it. No one of us has the, the entire sort of scope of it. What God is doing in each of us actually contributes to the, the life of the body of Christ. And here we see it that it is the understanding, that we've got to understand something that it isn't some mystical experience. So we kind of put the lights out and sort of sit there and wait for something to happen, uh, as though we are waiting for the tingle factor to come. It's our understanding, not the absence of our understanding, not the putting to sleep of our minds, not some sort of deliberate inducing of a, a state of feeling and of mind and some desired ecstasy. That is what's needed to have light and wisdom and revelation. Not it says the understanding here. This in darkness, and uh, it is for the unbeliever and gross darkness. The light shines in that darkness. But for Christians, there can still be a long way to go. And the understanding of a Christian can actually be quite, quite blind uh, and quite fumbling and very much still in the dark. And things need to happen there. And the lights switch on and truth, which was always there. It's not as if the Bible's had new verses added since you and I last read it, but sometimes it seems as such because we never noticed that. What it means, the implications of that. And that then begins to, to change us. We're seeing differently. And, and once you begin to see something, it can, it can snowball, can't it? You know, that truth links to that. And that makes a difference in that part of my life there. So my worries, so my concerns, that has a direct implication for that. And the lights are going on and God is at work bringing the understanding into a fuller, fuller understanding of spiritual truth. That's not pitching to our feelings as though, well, if you feel something, the job's done. We can fool ourselves. We felt something, but nothing happened at all in terms of spiritual things, a bit of a bit of excitement or something like that, but didn't amount to anything. 
people get hung up on music, that you play the music right and you'll feel something. You sure will. And we're all of us, I think most of us there, some are tone deaf, there's the fact, but otherwise, yeah, music can, can do stuff. But is it actually changing us? Is it really making the difference that having our understanding enlightened us? Well, when we see the truth, and that's not just sort of how all the words add up here. That's, that's not just words on the page and things that are just statements as such. There's truth that lives. This, this is about Christ and who he is, and it, it has impact. And once it has that impact, then our understanding is growing. Something's happening, and we're not the same people afterwards. So there's a need for that. Sin blinds, even blinds Christians, keeps our faculties in lockdown. Our minds need that renewing. Our mind's under threat. We're besieged by sin. We've got the devil working furiously there to try to stop us seeing things. It's deadly. If we see something and we understand it and begin to apply it, then his hold weakens a little bit more. And his possibilities and his strategies begin to crumble and fall apart. We're seeing what he doesn't want us to see. And Paul is praying know that you would see it because the more we see well actually then the more we do more faith comes more love follows from that and the whole life of the together body of christ the life that in communion develops and grows as the body edifies itself in love so my second heading what we see what is it paul is saying here that we would grasp what it particularly is it that we should grasp? Well, in fact, there are three things, three main areas. Those are kind of compartmentalize them too much. I think it would be wrong because they certainly flow one into the other. That's the nature of this prayer, isn't it? It's in one breath. It's these 269 words. And each thing kind of leads on to the next, leads on to the next. So they all kind of make sense together because they all link up together. And what we're seeing here, what he's praying for us, interesting, isn't it? Because it doesn't negate anything we said this morning about being poor in spirit. It's actually very positive, very bright, not making us miserable and sad people, not kind of denouncing us as such useless specimens and such weak and horrible things. It's not saying that at all. We might own that, and we might have to say that, uh, strictly speaking, all of that and more than that would be true of us. But that's not what God is telling us. Though he's had to cut us down to size and cause us to admit, woe, woe is me, that I am undone. And after that, there, as Isaiah found there, the coal from the, from the, the altar there, the tongues of that the seraphim used to touch his lips. There, your, your iniquities are atoned for. And of course, we have more than Isaiah saw. He saw the glory of Christ. He saw him in his own day and rejoiced in him. But we, of course, now have completed scripture before us and more, more light, more revelation that the Holy Spirit can bring to us. And so it's very positive, actually, very bright. The eye opening is not an eye opening to the sheer horror of our hearts, the sheer chaos and wretchedness no it's actually looking to remedy that very positive very hopeful terms 
that in a sense here, God, well, you might even say he's going to spoil us here. He's telling us such great things here and assuring us it really is as good as this. Paul is at pains to do, isn't it? That's why he's pouring himself out here. He wants them to get this and see it really, really is as good as this. Not that it really is as bad as this with me. No, it's, he's actually wanting to say it really is as good as this. And truth, when it's the Holy Spirit at work rather than the carnal mind, will actually be deeply humbled by it. It won't spoil us, actually. It'll make us. It's not going to ruin us, make us rather noisy, brash, proud people, kind of bossy and horrible people. It shouldn't. It does that to some people. But that's not the Holy Spirit. That's something else going on there. But when it's the Holy Spirit, why, the knowledge doesn't ruin us, but it actually makes us into the people God wants us to be. And so what do we find? Well, there's hope. There is hope. That's the first of these things. Verse 18, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. Calling of God. And he calls us and calls us and find that in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 4. Similar thought, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. When we were brought to Christ, when we received the invitation, we knew we'd received the invitation and we had to respond to it as God was at work in us. We weren't being invited to just collapse and fall in a hole, fall in a ditch. We weren't being invited to great uncertainty in the future that really, really looked very difficult. No. What was shown to us was a glorious future. Future glory. That's the hope we have. The Bible talks about hope. Not uh, just talking about like the experience of hope that you might feel hopeful today about the weather or you might not. And well, there we are. We see how it all turns out. This is much more substantial because heaven is much more substantial. And we saw it. We get a glimpse of it. It was revealed to us that I will take you to that place and you'll be qualified to be in that place. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ died to bring in effect. That That's what his, his desire was in laying down his life, is that we might be where he is and that the place he's preparing for us, he might come back to us and take us so that where he is, we may be also. And we're to know that. We're not to live with uncertainty. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. As though it's here today, gone tomorrow. No, it's here today and it's here tomorrow and it's here all the time. As long as we're here on earth and we still have hope because we're not there yet, you don't have hope, need hope in heaven. There it is. All of it is fulfilled. But you need it here on earth. And uh, so Romans chapter uh, 8 in that regard uh, just takes us to that thought in verses 24 and 25. And for we were saved in this hope. There's the calling. There was our salvation and there was this hope, we, we were a part of something that had an eternal dimension to it. We we're saved in this hope. Of hope that is seen is not hope, Paul says. For why does one still hope for what he sees? If you're in heaven, you don't need to hope. If you're there, you see it. Don't say, well, I hope I'll, I'm hoping for heaven in that way. There's, there's my hope ahead of me. It's not there yet because still it's, it's hope that I have. 
well, you've, you're there, then you've, you have it. But he says, but if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. We're waiting for it eagerly. It's anticipation. It's what Paul is praying. You may know this hope, not in kind of a vague sense, but a very definite sense that this will really lay hold of you. You, you will lay hold of it. And that will make a difference. And you will do it with perseverance because it's all contested ground. And the devil doesn't want you to have that hope, doesn't want me to have it. And, and so we, we persevere and God opens our eyes more and more to the reality of, of that place that we are traveling on to. Hebrews 11 verse 1, by faith. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, substance of things hoped for, that faith makes real, as it were, what still at the moment is future. And it brings something future into our present experience. It it gives it a dimension and a body and a reality. And that is where faith and hope are such twins together. So we're to be assured of this, a hope. We're to know the hope of our calling, what he gave to us, what promise he made that he'd save us from our sins, and that he would take us on to future glory. We know of this, don't we, there? And uh, there's the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ to kind of prove these points to us. And so we see, don't we, in 1 Corinthians 15, just a few uh, thoughts there, which uh, bring to our attention then in verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Well, I guess telling each other a story that just isn't true, well, there's not much to be said for that. That's pretty pathetic, isn't it? And uh, what am I doing standing here telling you any of this or telling myself any of this? Paul is saying, if if there's no resurrection, then forget it. Forget the whole thing. Of course, there is a resurrection. (laughs) So Paul, having put that particular possibility, that position out there, then immediately demolishes it. But now Christ is risen from the dead. And it's become the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep in verse 20, 1 Corinthians 15. And on it goes, and relentlessly Paul argues the case for the resurrection. Just to bring us to verse 40, 48 of 1 Corinthians 15. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust, as is the heavenly man. So also are those who are heavenly. As we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. We had Adam and that man of dust and death and decay he brought to us. And that's, that's our lot. We've flesh and blood and we carry the curse of that offense we have made against God. But now we also have the image of the heavenly man, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is eternal. Here's the resurrection. And so we bear his image. We we carry that hope, that truth with us. And that is something there that Paul prays we would know more about it. But he has more to say and of a similar kind. So there is also this glorious uh, inheritance. What is it? the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? That is the same idea. We're carrying on towards heaven. And we're thinking here at the end point of heaven, and we're sort of filling it out a bit more with substance. We've had a more general, the hope of heaven. 
That's sustaining us, and we're eagerly waiting for it with perseverance. But then there's more, the substance of it. First Corinthians chapter 2, just reading from verse 7. We speak, says Paul, the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. But had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. There it is. Things that, well, not entered our, our minds, what God has prepared. No, God then says, yes. But now, now that the Spirit is given, Christ is raised from the dead, there are things that he would share with us. This hidden mystery, this wisdom that was hidden, this glory to come. And it involves all of us. It's, it's rich. It has plenteousness. This is the, the nature of it. It's a good place. This is the, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. This is inheritance. This is the inheritance. Well, as commentators wonder at this quite what, what it's saying to us here. But we might still think of that inheritance of heaven, of being with Christ, that we're joint heirs with him, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. And it's collective. It's a community thing. It's in the saints. That his inheritance includes his people with him, enjoying the inheritance of heaven, that we're parts of the furniture of heaven, that we belonging there, our place there, our position there, that that is his work. And he wants us to know that we're going to be there. Each of us who are trusting in him, we're going to be there. We're going to see each other again. And we have, don't we, at the moment there, some of you know, friends who perhaps have not got long yet to live upon the earth and and we perhaps await their passing away, perhaps even in the next week or two. But we'll see them again. We'll see those friends again. And we know that. And this is the nature of his inheritance, that he has there a place prepared for his people. And it's in the saints. It's belonging to them, them belonging there. God's intention is that we inherit, well, we inherit, in a sense, each other being there. We are to each other something of that inheritance. We'll belong there. We'll be perfected there. We will be bearing the image of the heavenly man there in a full and finished sense of it. So we're told, do not be afraid. Uh, God is is not uh, kind of keeping some at arm's length. We'll all be there and he'll be there. And that, of course, is what makes it all so, so special. But it's a populated heaven, not an empty heaven. It's full of people like us, actually, and people who struggled and battled and people who were troubled and had all manner of things that were seemed to be stacked against them. Well, all of those people are there because God has set his seal upon us and we will, friends, we will persevere and be there. And we'll all have fascinating stories, this inheritance in the saints that includes the saints. They are part of that that completed place that furnished out with all that God intends. We are there and we'll have some stories to tell. 
means if there's love for the saints here on earth, there's going to be even more of it up in heaven. We'll so appreciate what God has done, so appreciate it, what he did against the odds, what he did in defying oh, all kinds of expectations, what your parents said or didn't say to you, you defied all of that, what, what doctors might have said to you, you defied all of that, and you persevered and you reached heaven. Well, there's something else too, power. That's the third of these things that Paul wants us to know about, wants God to show us power, the power that is at work in us. And the terms that he uses, well, it just is one great term following another great term, the exceeding greatness. You just feel that language can't quite say it. And Paul is straining the Greek here, pressing it hard to, to stretch it, like to breaking point, because it is such exceeding greatness of his power. And look, it's according to the working of his mighty power, not ordinary powers, if we can credit such things to God, his mighty power. And it's not somewhere else, somehow else, but it's right here and it's right now. And in fact, we have the worked example of what mighty power looks like, what exceeding greatness of power is, and it's the raising of God's son from the dead. It's the resurrection. All that was accomplished in that, defeating death and completely overcoming it and disarming principalities and powers in that and opening heaven up to the people of God. There is the very evidence of it there and that power is at work in us. The greatness of his power toward us, directed to ordinary people, the very power of God that is seen in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Overcoming temptation, we do. Overcoming sin, I hope we are. Avoiding traps and snares of the devil, well, I trust that too, that we're becoming wiser as we go and spotting the dangers easier and recognising the subtlety at times, the serpent and what he is doing, trying to disturb our peace. Somewhere within all of that, it's that power, power of God, being directed toward us. Power there is part of showing us the truth and we get it better and we, we're able to apply it and use it in that situation and, and so on. And heaven becomes a greater reality. Power shows us the reality of heaven, builds up our faith and builds up our hopes. All these things you see, they all kind of lock in with each other and ever that intention to show us that the future that we are moving towards is real, that we will come into that inheritance in the saints, that that hope, well, it can't be strong enough within us. And if we look at the resurrection, we can see, well, that's the future for us too. And oh, by the way, that power is directed toward God's people here and now. And that Christ is is a glorious Christ, isn't he there? And so for us, this, the instruction must be then keep praying. Keep praying for these things. Pray for each other for these things. Keep preaching. Yes. Keep serving. Yes. Stay in that difficult situation. Yes. Don't quit. Keep going. That work situation. Poverty, perhaps, which awaits some of us around the corner with uh, the economic circumstances we're in. Stay in there. And that power of God is working toward us. 
So, final heading. We find our place in him. That's what we do. We find our place in him. So, all oh, the hope, that's future gaze and everything there. And then it comes back to him, doesn't it? It comes back to our Lord Jesus Christ. There he is in verses 1 to 14. So much of that is taken up with him. Election, accomplished, redemption, the Holy Spirit now. And what's what's to be seen? Well, this Christ is to be seen by faith. We need to see more of him. Because where is he? Well, we're to see him not in a grave, not uh, humbled and looking very weak and ineffective. But no, the, the one who is focusing power upon the church is able to do it because he's far above all principality and power. There's no, nothing can impede him. Nothing can diminish him. There is no kind of impinging, encroaching authority upon him. He has everything, all power, might, dominion, every name, name of authority, name of royalty, all, all the highest titles, but he, he has them all. And not only the present ones, but in any age to come, any time, including glory itself, well, he owns the right to all of those. And we believe in him. And that's the one that we are following in his footsteps. We're traveling home to God, traveling home to him. That's the one that ultimately there that our hope is of heaven because our hope's in him. And he is the one who has promised us this, this wonderful inheritance, this, the riches of it. And he is the one whose resurrection shows us what the nature of that power is. It took him out of the grave and elevated him to this highest place. And it'll take us there, elevate us there. And even in our present circumstances, it can do so much to, to add to us and help us. So we locate ourselves in this scheme of things with Christ at the very center of it all. And it's eye-opening. It's meant to be. That's what Paul is praying, isn't it? For our eyes to be open, to be a little aghast. A little shocked in a very positive way at this, surprised at it. But should we be? Because such is the love of God that he doesn't want to keep good things a secret from us. And what's to come? Well, there's the encouragement, isn't it? That presently, well, there we are. We've been looking on into the future. But presently, presently, he is busy on our behalf. Because we're in the process, and we saw a bit of it, didn't we, there, where he's gathering together in one all things in Christ. And in a way, it puts it just slightly differently here. He's put all things under his feet. It's his authority. It's Psalm 110, verse 1, that, that comes into focus a little bit there, that all things, death finally, the last enemy, but all things now are being brought under his feet, or position, contrariness, Sinful rebellion in us is, is being subdued and he's exercising his rule over it. A power that works in us and is directed toward us helps that to be the situation. And here is something which really does make the commentators look and look and look again. Because our Lord Jesus Christ has been given to be head over all things to the church. So we know that all things are working together for good. For those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. Because Christ has been put as head over all things for the church, for his people. So while empires rise and empires fall, 
somewhere within it, are his people, like a little boat upon the water, and tidal waves here and great surging billows there, but still the boats, it's still there, and still floats on, and it still survives somehow. And it does, and it will. And that is the plan of God, putting all things under his feet, head over the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. The fullness of him, his body, his people, the church, we understand that, but the fullness of him, the one who fills all in all, omnipotent and omnipresent God. Well, we think best to understand this, that God, in all of his supremacy and glory and that all things are done according to his pleasure, that uh, we can't, as it were, give him joy more than he, he has. We know that. We know all of that. And yet, God has said that his plan is not complete without us, that there is something missing if we're not there, that if that inheritance is not populated by us, us in particular, those names and those people, then God declares that the work is not finished and done, that all things are under his feet, but we don't see death defeated yet. It's all to come. It's all to be finished. And the bringing in of all his people, the gathering in of them, God declares that the work is not finished yet. And if you will, there cannot be a divine contentment yet until it is done, until all the people have been gathered in north, south, east and west. And then that will be his fullness there. That'll be the job finished, the mission accomplished. And all that he sent his son to do in the earth has been finished. And until then, not finished, not the fullness, not the completion. He knows he will bring it to completion and he knows his plan won't fail. But at the moment he declares until the last of my people is safe with me, job not yet finished. My son, the fullness of him, his body still awaits that day. So there he is working for the church, bringing these people in to be his fullness, upholding things, nudging things, tweaking things, adjusting things making kings, as in the book of Esther there, to not sleep and need to read a book and have books read to them. And of course, that made all the difference to the security of the Jews in that day, if you know the, the Bible account there. Yes, nudging, adjusting, tweaking, altering the course of the future to fit his plan and purpose that his son may indeed be head over all things to the church. So, friends... It really is as good as this. And that's what Paul is praying that you and I would see. It really is as good as this.